Welcome to Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. This podcast is on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other platforms. Please rate and review, and if you can give any support, go to the Patreon page, and the link should be in the description. So, normally, I give historical lectures on all sorts of topics ranging from the Middle Ages to today. But this time I'm going to have another conversation with a friend that we'll simply call Mike. And we're going to talk about Game of Thrones. Wait yeah. A I have a question. I'm just going to touch this button. Okay. I'm going to untouch the button. It didn't hear you. Okay. But I... But, okay. <clears throat> well, I, was just, I was touching a different button. Sorry. That's bizarre. But but I... Okay. It just turns off the headphones. It just turns off... Okay. It just turns off the headphones. All right. So after about an hour or so of wrangling with mics and audio equipment and cables, this is what we were able to get on tape. Wait, can we actually hear... Wait, are we going by our real names? We all know who you are. You're Everybody knows who I am. I have explaining. nothing left. I have no surprises left. They probably um, know that I'm, I'm Mike. A, you're Mike. Okay. What Are you anything else other than Mike? You work in a STEM field. I, I, that's all that anyone needs to know for the moment. Who else is in the room? What, what do we say? Huge. Okay, Huge is in the room. Mr. Huge. Huge, <laughs> <laughs> and we, we can hear him okay. I don't think so. I don't think, I no. <clears throat> okay, so I've been doing myths of the month. Half of them have been open to the public to everyone, right? And half have been patrons only. That's right. right. So it was suggested to me, why don't you do a historian explaining about Game of Thrones, which is going to be finally returning next month, right? In in less than a month. And everyone whose life has been in suspended animation can finally live again, right? Um, and... Then I realized, okay, well, I have to do another myth of the month, so I should just do it about Game of Thrones, right? Game of Thrones is a myth, right? Yeah, Game of Thrones is what? <laughs> it's a show, Sam. Yeah, it's a well, well, it's it's a show based on a series of books, right? So okay. it's uh, it's fiction. I I've heard of fiction. Yeah, yeah, but I I think it's a myth. I think that it's. If it's a myth in the sense that I've been talking about, right? Of like a story that you weave together, that you try to make coherent and meaningful, right? That somehow explains uh, the world you live in, right? That somehow makes sense of things, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the myths that I've been talking about are stories or ideas that scholars present as being factual, right and or that ordinary people just assume to be factual you know like the enlightenment and capitalism and so on right uh whereas game of thrones is fiction right so it seems to be different right but this sort of distinction between like fiction and non-fiction or fiction and history is a pretty new thing right most myths through most of human experience are not necessarily really one or the other it's it's kind of uh 
it straddles the line, right? It's like a mixture of fact and imagination and fantasy that you, you know, try to weave into some sort of explanatory story, right? Okay, so you're saying that, like, say it's 1200, I'm a monk, yeah. I'm hanging out in a monastery, and I'm in, I'm in Europe somewhere, I'm in France. You're saying that um, the stories that people would tell each other, they didn't really have a distinction between fiction and nonfiction? No, no. I mean, if you would ask, you couldn't ask a monk in the year 1200, is the Bible fiction or nonfiction? That wasn't like a meaningful distinction they made. They're like, well, these are the stories that have been told to us that we think are important, right? And if you go back to the, you know, I, I mentioned like Herodotus, right? Supposedly the first historian. And like he collected accounts about what is Persia like, you know, what, how did these wars between Greece and Persia begin, right? But there's all kinds of fantastical stories and fables in there. He doesn't sort out, well, what do I think is like verifiably accurate and what is just a fable or a parable? It's all in there together because it's all useful. It's all meaningful in some way to him, right? And if you look at Game of Thrones, it's like, okay, so this is in the fiction section of the bookstore. So we're supposed to go in there expecting it to be just made up, right? But a lot of what's really interesting and what I think is really fun about Game of Thrones is that it takes all this stuff from actual history and kind of grinds it up in, you know, like a meat grinder and comes out with, I think, a kind of new mythology, Right. And when you're reading it, you don't care if it's factually accurate or not. Isn't that kind of the whole idea of fiction is like, well, I, I don't care if it's accurate. I care how it speaks to me. Right. Sure. Yeah. And this is sort of like a grand mythic cycle. I mean, that's kind of what Game of Thrones is. It's all about, uh, you know, the, the, the huge cycles of time, you know, deep, uh, deep time, uh, reliving the past. OK. Destiny, prophecy. Right. It's all this kind of grand tapestry of time that's supposed to, you know, maybe ultimately add up to some kind of point. I don't know. I guess we'll see. <laughs> but it's something anyone can speculate about. Right. What does all of this mean? So I think that superficially you say, OK, it's fiction, but that's but I think that it is mythology in a deeper way. OK, so a lot of people are into Game of Thrones. I don't think we ever introduced the show. Well, presumably people figured it out by the title. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. is Game of Thrones doesn't need a lot of boosting, right? Okay, in case anyone is lost, it's a TV show that's been produced on HBO. It's had seven seasons. The eighth is supposed to come out soon. It's based on a series of books by George R. R. Martin, who's a very experienced, long-standing fantasy and science fiction writer. The series of books actually is not called Game of Thrones. The series of books is called A Song of Ice and Fire, and each book has a different title. And Game of Thrones was just the title of the first book, right? And HBO decided, well, let's make that the title for the whole television series because it sounds a lot more dramatic and a lot more marketable than A Song of Ice and Fire, Right. Uh, you know, it sounds like it's about politics and feuding and and, uh, you know, power contests. And, and it is that. 
But that's only one level of it, right? It has all these weird mystical dimensions. And also, I think, more importantly, it's like about character and personality and sort of imagining different personalities dealing with these strange, fantastical situations. And that maybe it's it's sort of easier to see that when you look at the books than when you look at the TV show, which is more marketable and which I enjoy. <laughs> and I have watched and I have not read hardly any of the books. <laughs> I like couldn't when I tried. <laughs> All right. Okay. So make me care, please, Sam. Well, you you're know, very good at making me care in general. Oh, I know, I know. It's, it's. I, I, I know that you're really softy inside. I'm very um, soft. Yeah. Um. But well, you know, Game of Thrones. I'm not here to say that it's good. You know, I'm not a reviewer. Hey, I'm not saying it's bad. I, I'm, I'm not being pretentious here. Yeah, I, I yeah. Just, I know, I know. know. I, but I'm saying for the audience, I can't tell you if you are gonna like it or not. Um. But I do think that it's significant because I think that Martin and the other producers of the show and other fans of the show, because they're fans of, of the books and of George R. R. Martin, um, are constructing a kind of mythology for the 21st century, that they're kind of stepping in to this contemporary world where we have almost no shared stories or narratives about the world, right? Where, you know, previously, yeah, people might have talked about the Bible or about the Odyssey or anything, Pilgrim's Progress or uh, the Wizard of Oz, even in the 20th century. There's kind of no common touchstone that people okay. can talk about that, that they can refer back to to sort of explain, this is what I'm seeing, this is the kind of dilemma I'm in. And I think that probably consciously George R. R. Martin is trying to fill that void, right, and make a new mythology. And people have often compared it and contrasted it with Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, which was a big sensation. It was, you know, written in the 30s and 40s and then published and became very popular in the 60s. And it presents a very intentionally classic, uh, almost nostalgic, good versus evil story, right? If here are the sort of scrappy, little, hairy underdogs, you know, going out and confronting the evil force. Uh, and they win. I'm giving that away. Okay, spoiler. Uh, they succeed. And people have looked at Game of Thrones and said, look at how it contrasts with Lord of the Rings and how it's more cynical it's much more ambiguous, right? It's not always clear who is good or bad or even even who is on what side or who has what agenda. Different people sympathize with different characters. It's a lot more gritty, okay? Good people get killed in horrible ways. And in all of these senses, you can see it as much more uh, adult, I guess, than Lord of the Rings. But I think that that's reflective of of our time right and of what martin is doing today where we're in a very cynical disillusioned time right and people have lost faith in institutions lost faith in all kinds of shared ideals even things that people used to have a little more confidence in even in the 1960s we're in a very cynical and very fragmented time and i think that george r, r. martin he's not just reflecting that 
He's not just saying, oh, let me write something more mature than Lord of the Rings. It's kind of more the opposite of how do I write something that is believable, you know, in a metaphorical sense, that people can buy into, that people can find convincing, that maybe can restore people's faith in something, right? That maybe can make people feel like, oh, they're... There is some way to live with honor and high ideals and have a meaningful life in this very kind of cynical world. I see. So in comparison, Lord of the Rings is too much of a fairy tale. It's. I think it strikes people as naive. Whereas Game of Thrones, you actually have complicated characters, but at the end of the day, you're still getting the same messages about character building like what makes a person a good person yeah yeah and so I, it's an easier pill to swallow because we have a more cynical or sophisticated depending on your perspective palette yeah yeah and i think that this is part of why they kill a lot of characters is that <laughs> in a way there's a logic to it you know it's kind of like when someone takes a hostage or like takes a a group of people hostage and like kills one of them to show that they're serious, (laughs) right? I think that's almost the parallel of what's happening in Game of Thrones. It's like, look, I'm not, this is not a simple naive story where you're going to be paid off with the good guys prevailing, right? Uh, People are going to suffer for no reason. Good people are going to die for no reason. And once we've established that, then the next question is, okay, then how do you exist in that kind of world? How do you exist in that kind of situation? And how can you still have some sort of ideal to cling to even when even when that doesn't being a good person and having principle doesn't mean anything is going to work out for you. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? It's it's a it's intentionally addressing a cynical audience in a way that I don't think I mean as far as I'm aware no other fantasy does. I'm sure there are fans who could tell me about (laughs) all kinds of other good fantasy fiction I should be reading but it's clearly addressing itself to a different audience in a different mentality you see what I'm saying I I see what you're saying so so do you think if you go back to the monk in the 1200s the bible would have a similar kind of role in their lives like like the would they look at that and see like, oh, good people die in it. Like a lot of messy stuff happens. It doesn't always make sense, but it somehow is this touchstone. And the, do you think the enthusiasm that people have for Game of Thrones is in a weird way analogous to the Bible back then? But like, is, is there, are there similar feelings? Like if you read primary source documents of monks talking about, you know, and nuns talking about their experience, like steeped in this stuff well i mean i I can't speak to monks and nuns specifically but the bible is all kinds of different stories written by different people at different times right that say as i've said before when i talk about the bible right the different parts often contradict each other right there's it's very confusing but if you were to say okay does the Bible speak to people in this way that I think Game of Thrones is trying to? Well, I mean, the book of Job. I mean, isn't this what the book of Job, this is what the book of Job is. It's, well, here's a guy who gets completely screwed in every way, right? Everything is taken away. It's as bad as it can possibly be. Uh, does he still believe, right? That's, that's 
what the whole book of Job hinges on. And, you know, the answer you get in this story is yes. You know, if he if he's a faithful person, then he remains faithful absolutely no matter what. But this is the same kind of thing Game of Thrones is trying to do. And I think that uh, it's no accident that it's woven through with these historical references. I mean, if you want to put it that way. He's, he's taking storylines, he's taking situations from history, and he's retreading them in a slightly different setting. Um, and that it's basically the late Middle Ages. It's basically the 15th century acted out on this kind of grand, exaggerated canvas, right? So if you look at f- fantasy literature, okay, I mentioned Lord of the Rings, which is kind of its own thing. Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter. These are all series of stories, right? All taking place in Britain. Okay, Britain is like the place where fantasy happens, right? And all of them somehow involve a British person passing through some kind of portal into like a distorted fantasy parallel world, right? Whether that's Narnia or Hogwarts. Okay, this is, I mean, as far as I can see it as an American, from my point of view as an American, who's like, you know, enjoys some fantasy, but is not that into it. This is basically what the fantasy genre is. It's like, let's put ourselves in England and then... You know, an outlander, it's just Scotland, right? You know, it's just a little, little moved a little north. Uh, let's put this person through this portal and have them come out in almost like a dream parallel world that is still kind of British, right? That still has British words, British names, uh, British ideals, really. Uh, and I think Game of Thrones is basically, it's an American doing this, Right. And instead of saying, okay, let's put our person in Britain and then put them through the portal, instead he paints this kind of crazy funhouse mirror exaggerated version of Britain as it exists in Americans' imagination. And that's Westeros, right? It's this huge sprawling continent that's unthinkably ancient, that has this kind of deep history, that has these clans and their castles and their bannermen, you know, with these millennia-long histories and these sort of fanatical loyalties and these strange, you know, mystical rituals. It's like, it's almost like if if, if you looked into an American's dream visions, this is how they see Britain, right? And you can kind of roughly map Westeros onto Britain. It looks, people have pointed out, it looks kind of like Britain on the map, right? It's just like a thousand times bigger, right? And, you know, King's Landing, the capital, is basically situated more or less like London, and it's dense and busy and dirty. Uh, And then you have these kingdoms, which are kind of like the counties of England, each of which has its own history, its own dialect, its own noble families, right? Its own history, uh, and naturally, of course, as you go north, it gets more rugged, more cold. And then you have this big wall, you know, which is more or less like Hadrian's Wall. is still there, runs across kind of the northern end of England, close to the Scottish borders. Uh, and so the north that you see in, in Game of Thrones is kind of like northern England, like Yorkshire and the Scottish borderlands. 
and then beyond that you have like barbarians right you have you know you have madness <laughs> and uh and likewise the the other continent i don't think the snp party is going to like where you're going with this thing well you know i'm very sympathetic to snp if you couldn't tell from my outlander podcast but yeah i mean scots have I don't know. I don't know what Scots think about the wildlings and the, you know, the, or the free folk as they call themselves. That is the PC term. The free folk, these sort of tribal caveman-like people who live beyond the wall. But you know, yeah, this is this is sort of like if you ask an American, you know, give them a little a little piece of a, of a tab of acid and uh, let them sort of expound on what is Britain like. This is more or less I think what you get, right? And and then, you know, the other continent, Essos, is basically, you know, an Orientalist imagining of, of Eurasia. It's these decadent cities with their fancy silks and corrupt, uh, despotic kingdoms to the east, right? And that's, that's where we see Daenerys uh, making her way through to get back to Westeros, you know, and a whole other myth I haven't really talked about specifically is like the West, the idea that there's this coherent civilization with certain traditions. And, uh, you know, when an American talks about the West, they're basically thinking about Britain, right? You know, about the English language, English literature, political liberty. Well, you kind of alluded, I think, in your first podcast when you talked about what is Western history. And also when you talk right. about the Charles Murray book. Like, I think you've pretty... Strange Death of Europe. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've pretty much implied that this whole concept of the West is... Yeah. ...is silly, and, and most... most. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm torn about it. I teach classes in Western civilization, you know, and it's a little hard to go to undergrads and say, so this is, like, not a thing, <laughs> but I have to teach a class about it. <laughs> uh, there's something salvageable about it, about that idea, but basically the last time in history where that idea did have some meaning and some coherence is basically the late Middle Ages, right? Where you actually have a Western church and Western Christendom that does have certain shared institutions and shared beliefs. You know, it doesn't necessarily hold together. Once you have complications like the Reformation or overseas colonization, the usefulness of that category diminishes. But basically, again, I think if you ask people, what's the West? What does that mean to you? What is of value about it? They get this romantic sort of picture that I think looks a lot like Westeros, right? But again, although he's he's sort of creating this this image of of Britain, this kind of fantasy parallel world version of Britain, there's much more specific references that I think matter. So if you if we say okay what's the basic conflict that goes on in this grand story you know there's it's this whole multi-party struggle for power okay who's going to control the iron throne right and we're introduced to kind of these two basic feuding parties the Lannisters and the Starks right so basically anybody whether you've even watched the show or not has probably heard this much right you've got these two these two dynasties uh, struggling with one another, the Lannisters and the Starks, and the Lannisters are are Southern, okay, and and they have they have these kind of uh, qualities of Southernness. They're kind of wily and conniving, and uh, 
even complacent in some ways. And then the Starks are sort of traditional, straightforward, kind of, you know, uh, rugged, uh, salt-of-the-earth people, right? And clearly this is cribbed from the Wars of the Roses, right? With the, the, the Lancasters and the Yorks, okay? It was a power struggle from the 14, uh, 1440s, really, up until until at least 1485. Some people would even draw it even to 1487, where it was, there was a, you know, a dynastic dispute over succession to the English throne. And these were the two main parties, right? The Lancasters and the Yorks. And all of them were related, right? They're all descended by one line or another from the Plantagenets, right? The, the Norman dynasty that ruled England from 1066 or, you know, or a little later, depending on how you use the term. And it was a, you know, a horrible internal civil war that kind of broke out and subsided and broke out over and over again and was, you know, more, really more destructive and more bloody than any conflict there had been before in Britain. And it's, it's funny, you can still see the wounds are kind of still there in ways that seem almost amusing to Americans. So it's called the Wars of the Roses because the symbol of the Yorks was a white rose and the symbol of the Lancaster family was a red rose. So it gives you this nice, you know, it's it's very it sounds like fantasy, right? It's like these these two houses with their different symbols. But it was a real political struggle, you know, it was a struggle over over money and power and there are still people in England who still identify with one side or the other. What? Yeah, so you know about Richard III, right, and how his remains were found a few years ago? Uh, the Richard III Society, who want to, you know, revive his memory, they sort of said, well, where might he be buried? And they started digging up under a car park and within a few days actually succeeded in re- locating the remains of Richard III. And so he was exhumed and reburied in uh, Leicester Cathedral, right in the middle of England, in Leicester. And when his remains were, you know, laid out in state in the cathedral, white roses started showing up. <laughs> the symbol of the House of York. He was a York king, and there are people in that region who still see themselves as Yorkists. And they went and laid white roses. Which is like one of these things that, yeah, it's mind-boggling to an American, Right. To imagine, is it like kind of like some people in the South have weird, you know? It is like that, but we're that's only talking about 170 years ago, you know. That's not talking about <laughs> that's not talking about 600 years ago. I guess we should explain <laughs> for your non-American <laughs> listeners that some people in the South kind of have this. Oh, yeah. There's resentment about yeah, uh, losing the Civil War, losing the Civil War. You know, the, the Yankees, uh, you know, burned their way through Georgia and uh, the carpetbaggers, you know, the northern politicians who rushed down to, you know, run the occupied governments in the south. There is still resentment about that. But that's like, you know, a few generations ago, <laughs> you know, that th- from the British perspective, that's new. <laughs> you know that's modern but there is it's you know people take these stories about what happened and they turn it into into a mythology that they that they cling to 
right? You know, not to put them down, but that's just how people behave, right? In some parts of the world, it goes back to even more ancient history than that. Obviously, George R. R. Martin is drawing on this, right? He's drawing on this social memory, you might say, of the War of the Roses and the kind of just very at once dark but also romantic sort of vision of this civil war, this kind of family against family civil war. And you can see it fits into this sort of longer history of Westeros, right, which also is sort of weirdly patterned on Britain and particularly England, right? So the Starks and the Lannisters both in some way, in some roundabout way, can claim rulership, right? So the Lannisters have married into another family, the Baratheons. Uh, They have some sort of descent from the previous ruling dynasty, which is the Targaryens, okay? And the Targaryens have been ruling for 200-something years since a conqueror came over from the other continent called uh, Aegon the Conqueror, who came with dragons and, you know, burned up everybody in his path and installed himself as as ruler, right? And that's why the capital is King's Landing. It's where this conqueror landed. And uh, before that, it was a sort of fragmented realm of various local kingdoms. It was first inhabited by these kind of quasi-plant magical people called the Children of the Forest, who then were displaced by migrants called the First Men, Okay, then the first men get overthrown by the Andals, and then finally the Andals by Aegon Targaryen, who creates this kingdom of Westeros, right? And then the question is just the line of descent from Aegon and these different branches of the different families and who who should claim the throne, right? Well, this is clearly, you know, it's mimicking uh, England, right? I think the, the children of the forest are basically like the pre-Indo-European people right? The sort of uh, Stone Age people who built Stonehenge and stuff like that, about whom we don't know very much, right? They then get displaced by the Celtic people, right? The the Britons who were Celts. And they're like the first men, okay? And then they are conquered by the Romans for a while, but that's like a separate story. But they ultimately, uh, they get invaded and displaced by the Anglo-Saxons, right, who come in in the 400s, 500s, basically from Germany. And so they're like the Andals. You know, Andals even sounds like Anglo-Saxon. You know, it's the same sort of word. And then Aegon, the Conqueror, is William the Conqueror, right, is this Norman French king who comes in and, and invades and takes over in 1066, right? So anybody who who has like a basic cursory knowledge of, of English history can see the template right? They might disagree a bit about what about the children of the forest, but it's all pretty close, right? It maps on pretty closely. So in this way, you know, again, he's he's not really making up that much of the story. He's kind of reworking stuff that some of his audience will already know and that you can find in an encyclopedia if you want to, if anybody still has an encyclopedia, you know, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it, none of this is very new, right? Now, if you look at the War of the Roses itself, right? Have you heard of the War of the Roses? Is that like a familiar? Well, you've told me about it, and you've told okay, it. Okay, so you you've told cheated. it to me. Yeah, I, I'm I'm always cheating. I've cheated my whole yeah, life. Yeah, <laughs> good, uh, good. I'm a cheater. So you you told it to me, and uh, it 
it emotionally affects you. Like I could, it, it the is, War of the Roses. Oh yeah, it's like a hmm. great story, and and I think like the uh, how it manifests itself in the present. You've you've talked to me a little bit about like the Queen of England doesn't didn't want King. Yeah, like, yeah. Was it Richard the Third? Succession disputes yeah. are a very sensitive thing, but yeah. So Richard the Third, Richard the Third effectively was the last. He was the last York king, right? So. So there was this power struggle where um, the Plantagenets, I mean, just to just to briefly outline what went down here, the Plantagenets are of Norman extraction, right? They come, they're the dynasty that comes down from William the Conqueror and his, like, grandchildren, right? And the last Plantagenet is Richard II, and he rules in the late 1300s, and he comes to the throne very young, and so, really, the kingdom is not being run by him so much. It's being run by various councils of powerful nobles who uh, see themselves kind of as regents, right, who, who are actually qualified to run the government. And Richard II terribly resents this. And when he becomes old enough, he struggles against them. To, to shut down these councils and often even to destroy, you know, to kill off the members and destroy their families and, you know, naturally suppress this power base that challenges his own authority, right? And so naturally a lot of the upper class really resents this. And one of them called Bolingbroke, uh, he's disinherited and he flees from England and then he comes back and mounts uh, a rebellion and a coup. And he overthrows Richard II and imprisons him and seizes power for himself. And so he becomes King Henry IV. And uh, so he's the first king of the Lancaster dynasty, right? So you get these Lancasters for a while, for like 55, 56 years, the early 1400s. The Lancasters are ruling. And there's always this cloud of illegitimacy over them right like <laughs> how is that a legitimate succession to the throne you know well this guy's causing me trouble so i'm just gonna get rid of him and there's also a lot of uncertainty about what happened to richard ii it seems he dies in prison we don't really know how and there's like lots of nasty rumors about somebody shoved a hot poker up his behind and things like this which may may or may not be true probably not but the lancasters rule but Henry VI of the House of Lancaster, all he loses his mind, right? He's not really functional. He can't, he had some kind of mental problems, right? And he, he can't rule. So the kingdom is run more by his wife, Queen Margaret of Anjou, who's French-born. So she kind of takes things over herself and becomes the effective ruler. But she is challenged by a male sort of grand vizier type, who was proclaimed protector of the realm, and that's Richard of York, right? And basically, Richard of York decides that the situation has arisen again where the ruler can't rule, and it's time to overthrow him, and he tries to claim the throne for himself. So what you end up with is this decades-long struggle between Margaret and her supporters, who we call Lancastrians, and Richard and his supporters and his sons, who are Yorks, right, or of the House of York. So this Richard of York, is he related to Richard II? He is. So Richard of York briefly manages to seize power 
and proclaims himself king. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't work out for very long. And the Lancastrians are able to strike back and they retake control. Um, and, and actually, there's a series of battles intermittently between the different factions. You know, the whole, every county, every city all around the kingdom is divided between these two parties, right? So there's a series of battles and the, the, probably the biggest one, the Battle of Towton in 1461, is very bloody. And the Lancastrians are doing pretty well. Uh, it t- so it takes place like on a hill in Yorkshire, right? In the sort of rugged northern area of the country that tends to be more Yorkist, naturally, right? And at the last moment, a, a York supporter, the Duke of Norfolk, rides in and surprise attacks the Lancastrian flank and forces them to flee. So it ends up being a big York victory. So if you have watched the whole show, I don't know exactly how far the plot lines have advanced in the books. So spoiler alert if you don't want to have any hint from history of what might be happening (laughs) as the storyline continues. But if you've watched the show, you probably know what, what the battle in the show is that's based on the Battle of Town. It's pretty obvious, right? Um, So it ends up being a big Yorkist victory, and the Yorks are able to consolidate power for a while, but not completely. And what ends up happening is the three sons of Richard of York, who are named Edward, Richard, and George, sort of form a cooperative alliance. They get support from overseas. They make a landing by sea and invade southward, uh, towards London. And what happens is the the eldest brother, Edward, then proclaims himself king, and he becomes King Edward IV. He becomes a king, right? He also dies kind of mysteriously, and his children disappear. They may have been done away with as well. And so the second son, Richard, then becomes king. So again, of the York dynasty. But he becomes Richard III. Right, so that's where we get Richard the Third, and he, uh, and Richard the Third rules for a few years. He has fans who say he was actually a pretty good king, but then he is also then overthrown by another challenger from a totally different branch of the family, <laughs> who is neither Lancaster nor York. Okay, so he is defeated and killed at the Battle of Bosworth Field, fourteen eighty-five, and that is basically more, you know, for all intents and purposes, the end of the Wars of the Roses. So who is it who overthrows him? It's this guy named Henry Tudor, who's like a kind of nobody, low-level nobleman from, uh, from mo- partly Welsh ancestry. And the name Tudor is Welsh. So this guy, Henry Tudor, wins the battle, and he proclaims himself king, so he's Henry VII. And from there we get the whole Tudor dynasty. That's where you get Henry VIII, Bloody Mary, Elizabeth. They're all Tudors. Right, so that's that's how the story ends in real history, right? So naturally, you might ask, okay, well, how does all of this fit with um, with Game of Thrones, right? Well, I'm seeing some connections. Yeah, yeah. Seems. Well, what what kind of connections? Well, Lannisters, Lancasters. Yeah, a female ascending to the throne. Right. So Cersei is sort of like Margaret of Anjou, right? Yeah, I'm uh, seeing that the Lannisters are probably, or sorry, the Lancasters had a lot of upper class allies. Well, both sides did. 
both sides did. I mean, it really divided right from top to bottom. You know, that's the way they do it in England. People kind of line up by what powerful family they're connected to, who their patrons are. So it really split top to bottom. And you can see in a way, you know, in, in Game of Thrones, you have Robert Baratheon, right? They kind of compress the Lancasters down, the whole Lancaster dynasty, down to just Robert Baratheon and his wife, Cersei Lannister, right? And Robert Baratheon can't really rule because he's a drunk, right? He's a dysfunctional drunk. And so Cersei kind of steps in and tries, and the, the Lannister family tries to step in and run things in his stead. But they are challenged by, by the Starks. Now, a funny difference is that the Starks don't really try, at least as far as we've seen so far, they don't make any attempt to take the Iron Throne, right, and rule Westeros. They just try to rule the North, right? They just try to create a separate Stark kingdom in the North, which I find interesting. It made me sympathize more with the Starks. I, it made me see them as better. And I think that George R. R. Martin, like, yeah, the characters are complex and the morality is nuanced, but you're supposed to like the Starks, right? <laughs> They're basically the good guys in his in his vision, right? Don't you think so? Yeah, I watched the first few seasons. I think you're supposed to like the Starks. Yeah. And when you told me a few years ago that you know people... Both don't. of us know people. Yeah, we know. <laughs> we know people. We know people, audience, that don't like the Starks. And who prefer the Lannisters. And who prefer the Lannisters. Yeah, which I find super weird initially, but it's also just a TV show, so whatever. Well, but no, it's still kind of crazy. I've told people this. <laughs> I've told people, you know, I know people who like Cersei Lannister. <laughs> and I get two reactions. I get two Although reactions. Although this was earlier before we'd seen all the crazy stuff she was going to do. Yeah, but come on. you got to read yeah. between the lines here. Yeah, yeah. It's like not a big shock. Yeah. And people have one of two reactions. They're like, oh, my God, that is a sociopath. Or they're like, I really don't care. It's a TV show. Who cares? Yeah. Which are, you know, I, I'm sort of torn between those two reactions. I kind of understand both of them. But on a gut level, I'm like, but can't you tell who the good guys and who the bad guys are? Um, this is like people who root for the for the underdog versus people who root for, like, the... The dominant the power. Favorite. The favorite, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a different... It's a whole different, like, view of the world. But but as for the... what is How is all this going to unfold? There's all these prophecies about the dragon with three heads, right? So dragons are the symbol of the Targaryen dynasty from in Game of Thrones, right? And they keep saying, well, the dragon has three heads and Daenerys, who is a Targaryen, has three dragons, right? And so fans have been saying, well, does this mean that there are going to be three characters who are somehow going to ally together and ride these three dragons, perhaps, and take control of, of Westeros and maybe restore the Targaryens possibly and when I discussed this with friends I thought okay well it sounds like we're talking about Jon who is from the Starks Daenerys who is a Targaryen herself and Tyrion who is the most sympathetic and smartest character from the Lannisters right and these three are going to sort of bring these three dynasties together and 
combine their skills, their very different skills and their different personalities to be able to uh, tame this this kingdom, right, and end these civil wars. In the Wars of the Roses, like I said, the, the Yorks land in up in Yorkshire and then invade southward and take London, led by these three brothers, kind of in tandem, right? Edward, Richard, and George, the Duke of Clarence, right? And, and all of this is recalled in Shakespeare's plays in different ways, right? Including, you know, Rich, Richard III, right? Where it all kind of comes to a close, right? And, and, they're, and they're all, you know, thankfully uh, put to bed by the heroic Tudor, right? Who is the ancestor then of Queen Elizabeth, who is Shakespeare's patroness, right? Who is paying to put on a lot of these shows, right? So naturally, the Tudors are the good guys who sort of brought peace and unity back to the realm, right? And that's kind of the lens we always see it through, right? Is through is through Shakespeare. But, uh, you know, and I, I guess George R. R. Martin maybe is, is trying to evoke the same kind of feelings. Maybe the three-headed dragon is what's going to win, or maybe not. Maybe there's some other person out of left field who's going to show up when we totally don't expect it and resolve all of this. All right. I, I want to Okay, let's imagine like the three, like that those three characters end up, you know, saving the day. Mm-hmm. Is, is there some sort of subtext going on here? Is the author like trying to signal to people that he's like a little pro York? Like, what is it about being? Is he a Yorkist? <laughs> Maybe. Is, is he a Yorkist? And and what? And like, why are people Yorkists? Like, what is it? Like, is it, why, why do people hold on to this particular thing? And, 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 and why is the author into it? Like, what's going on there? What's the appeal of this myth? Like, what is it about the status quo dynasty that currently exists in England that makes people, like, reach back to this White Rose family? Well, I mean... I think maybe I can talk a little more about that at the end of just like what I think that relates to that. But if you look at the late Middle Ages, it was, you know, the way we customarily understand it is that it was kind of the aftermath of the High Middle Ages. And the High Middle Ages were a time when there were certain shared ideals. There was, you know, chivalry, the sort of code of honor of the noble class. And then in the 13 and 1400s, that broke down, you know, and people even at the time said, you know, this is an age without honor. People no longer take the responsibility of fighting hand to hand. They just get a musketeer to shoot their opponents from hundreds of feet away. And the world is kind of falling into into chaos. You know, it was sort of a time of disillusionment. And when you look at these battles, like the Battle of Towton, you know, people were being, they were, they were being killed from hundreds of feet away by, by crossbows and longbows and, uh, and then cannon made their way into warfare. And it was no longer possible really for a noble house to just kind of have their castle and defend their territory and present themselves as sort of the models and protectors of their little fiefdoms. It was now, everything was thrown into doubt. And I think that, George R. R. Martin and his fans kind of appreciate that feeling. It's almost like I think a lot of people feel 
now that they're in a kind of post-apocalyptic world that you know there is no moral order there are no role models it's kind of every man for himself uh you know struggle for survival right the most machiavellian rise to the top and i think that i think that talking about the wars of the roses or reimagining them and reliving them is almost like a way of dealing with that fear right that anxiety right of like how am i going to exist in this kind of world you know am, am i just going to be a cutthroat you know self-serving you know survivor or should i believe in something but i but i want to save that i want to save that because there's something else i want to say about the history that he's evoking okay 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 if you haven't followed Game of Thrones very much, like one other thing that you very likely heard about at some point is the Red Wedding, right? So this was in the books. It's very elaborate in the books. It's in the show. You know what the Red Wedding is? Yeah. So you have, you know, the Starks, their patriarch, Ned Stark, goes down to King's Landing to serve as Hand of the King, kind of like Prime Minister. And he ends up getting executed, right? He pisses off the wrong people, he tips his hand, he gets executed. So then the Starks have this vendetta, right? They want to go back, they want to fight back against the Lannisters who have now basically taken power in King's Landing, right? They want independence. And um, they have an heir, right? Rob Stark, who's young and handsome and dashing, very good looking in the show, very good looking. And he is the sort of the avenging son, right and he's making progress he's getting there uh but then he makes an alliance with a very dangerous uh cynical nobleman in the middle of westeros and this alliance is supposed to be sealed by a marriage right and so they go to this to walder Frey, that's his name to his castle to celebrate this wedding and they end up getting locked in and slaughtered right all the starks killed except for those few who happen to not be there right who are just off who knows where you know wandering it, you know it upset a lot of people i am not very good at anticipating shows but this one i did anticipate a little bit i was like yeah that that's not going to turn out well uh and part of the reason why is because there have been many episodes like this or you know there have been episodes like this in real history and they tend to be infamous, right? Because not only is it shocking and and brutal, but it's a betrayal, right? This is not how a host behaves towards guests or vice versa, right? And the, the ethics around uh, hospitality are very, very important in Europe, right? In European civilization. That's a big deal to turn on your own guests. So there have been incidents and one that people don't, mentioned so much but that i think really matters is the so-called banquet of blood in ad 750 where you had the the umayyads had been the ruling uh dynasty of caliphs early on in the islamic empire and then they were overthrown by rebels led by another uh dynasty the abbasids and at some point uh the abbasids told the umayyads well let's make peace Right? And how do you do that? By breaking bread together. And we'll have some kind of reconciliation. So they invite them to a big banquet in Damascus. And um, 
And then they, you know, lock the doors and, and club them to death. <laughs> and it's an easy, efficient way to wipe out your rivals, right? <laughs> Get them all in one room and then eliminate them. It happens that one prince, uh, Abdul Rahman, wasn't there. So he ran away incognito and snuck his way through North Africa and then crossed over to Spain, the sort of farthest, most remote Islamic kingdom, where he then revealed himself in his identity assuming this was really him, uh, and so was proclaimed emir or king of Spain. And then later his descendants be, were proclaimed caliphs. So you had this kind of separate, like, secessionist caliphate over in Spain, apart from the Abbasids uh, empire, right? So I think we see a lot of parallels here to, for one thing, Jon Snow, right? The sort of half-stark guy who is was off at the wall, you know, in a totally different place because he wasn't important enough to be at the wedding, right? It wasn't his place. And he now is sort of carrying on the Stark banner, right? Literally and figuratively. So I think that that must have been one of the many elements kind of in George Martin's mind, right? Then there's there's also, if you go back to Britain, you know, in closer proximity, there was a banquet at the royal court at Edinburgh, in Scotland in, I think it was 1440. Yeah, the Black Banquet in 1440, where the young Stuart King and his advisors were feuding for power with the Black Douglas clan. And this was a very clan-based society, right? Most of Scotland at this time. And so they invited in the leaders of, of the Black Douglases, had a whole feast with them, and then reportedly dropped a boar's head, which was a symbol of the Douglases, onto the table saying, guess what? Now you're all going to be beheaded uh, and sort of dragged them out and accused them of treason and all kinds of charges and then executed them, right? So that clearly had to be part of the inspiration, right? Yeah, things like this happen. You know, if, you, if your enemies say, oh, well, you know, now we've changed our mind and now we just want to have you uh, at a feast, don't accept the invitation, <laughs> right? Or at least have, have as many of your own soldiers with you as they have, you know, don't, don't fall into that trap. But probably the biggest model, the biggest inspiration for the Red Wedding, which I even thought of because it's very famous, is the Glencoe Massacre, right? Have you, have you heard of that? I haven't. They might tell you about it if you, if you go to like the Scottish Highlands and Glencoe is a very beautiful place uh, in, in the Western Highlands. And it was the site of a massacre in 1692 where an army unit that was mainly led by members of Clan Campbell uh, took a shelter, you know, claimed uh, housing from Clan MacDonald. And the problem is that there was a war going on, again, over succession to the throne of England and Scotland. And the struggle was between supporters of the Stuart dynasty, right? So the Stuarts, I mentioned them already, right? They're a Scottish dynasty, right? They'd been ruling in Scotland already for more than 200 years. And then they had also been able to inherit the English throne. When uh, Elizabeth died, her next heir was James of Scotland, right? Who was a Stuart king of Scotland. So he succeeds to the throne, and so you get these Stuarts ruling both England and Scotland. But in 1688, 
the Stuart King, James II, is overthrown for a lot of reasons, but the biggest one being that he's a Catholic. And at that point, the parliament just couldn't accept a Catholic ruler. So he's overthrown and replaced with William and Mary, who are Protestant. And this just sparks civil wars uh, all over England, Scotland, Ireland, even the colonies to some degree. And basically the, the new government, the, the sort of William and Mary government that's taken over, demands oaths of loyalty from anybody who has any kind of significance, including the Highland clans and their chieftains, right? And so all kinds of Highland clans send messages and sign oaths saying, yes, we'll support William and Mary. Uh, the McDonald's kind of drag their feet and miss the deadline. So the government issues an order, a secret order, saying eliminate the McDonald's and uh, tear them out root and branch is the famous phrase they use. So this army unit goes over and, you know, claims quarter with the McDonald's. And, uh, and then in, early in the morning before dawn, they just go in and kill them all in their beds or kill all the men. And the women and children run away into the hills and probably most of them die of exposure, right? So killed maybe around 100 people very quickly in one massacre. And this has been infamous, right? Infamous in Scottish, in Scotland, right? And the people who remained loyal or sympathetic to the Stuarts, the older dynasty, look at the McDonald's as kind of martyrs, right? Even though they, they weren't necessarily really Jacobite, right? Jacobite is the word we use for the party that supported the Stuarts, right? Because James was the last Stuart. Jacobus just means James, right? So Jacobites look at them as kind of hero martyrs, and they look at the Campbells as the villains, right? Like they're the Walder Frey characters, right? But, you know, real life is more complicated. Where did the McDonald's loyalties really lie? Maybe it wasn't so simple, and it wasn't really the Campbells that killed them. It was an, a royal army unit that happened to have Campbells at the top. And still today, apparently, kind of half-jokingly, people put signs in their store windows saying, no, you know, no dogs, no Campbells. <laughs> They're still considered, like, persona non grata. And the current queen that we have is descended from William and Mary. That's the dynasty we currently have. The current queen is descended from all of these people, which means that her legitimacy as monarch depends on all the claims of all these different people who have shown up and overthrown somebody and claimed the throne. So it depends on the legitimacy of Henry Tudor coming in and overthrowing Richard III. Okay, so that's part of why she said no royal funeral for Richard III. <laughs> no thank you, right? She doesn't, she doesn't uh, like that story being told, okay? And it depends on the Stuarts, right? James coming in, and it depends on William and Mary overthrowing uh, James II and becoming uh, Protestant monarchs, right? All of those things. If any of those uh, links in the chain is questioned, then so is the legitimacy of the current monarch. So it's all rather sensitive. <laughs> it's all ra a rather touchy subject. So I, I can see why perhaps disenfranchised groups in England and Great Britain would uh, maybe they'd have some sort of allegiance, some sort of fantasy allegiance to different factions. So all these alternate claimants that might be out there? Sure. Absolutely. Well, and the Stuarts, 
so Jacobitism, the, the wing of Britain that supported the Stuarts, was quite significant all through the 1700s, right? And they're the ones who mount the 1715 uprising, the 1745 uprising, where so-called Bonnie Prince Charlie, the Stuart Prince of Wales, lands in Scotland, rallies the Highlanders, retakes Edinburgh, but then fails to take England. That was all the Jacobites, right? And apparently Jacobitism, there were no Gallup polls at that time, so we don't know exactly how many people really supported it, but it was big. It was a lot. And it was a real threat all through the 18th century and even even some into the 19th century. There were certainly a lot of intellectuals, a lot of traditionalists, a lot of artists who continued to sympathize with the Stuart cause, even even after it had become basically a lost cause, right? It was still there. And it was a custom to sort of, there were various things you could do to secretly or quietly signal your Jacobite sympathies, right? It was an underground thing for for centuries, right? One of the things you could do was you could, uh, when you toasted the, to the health of the monarch, which was a thing you would always do at any formal occasion, right? If you were a Jacobite, you could, Hold your wine glass over your water glass or a finger bowl with water to show that you were toasting to the king over the water, meaning the exiled Stuart claimant, right? And the, and the Stuarts, they set up courts in exile in Italy and in France at different times, right? And this is the reason why finger bowls were not allowed at any royal function or any royal residence until 1903 (laughs) because they didn't want people to have any way to sort of wink at each other like oh guess what i'm a jacobite i don't accept the legitimacy of this ruler right and so the king over the water that was the phrase people used right and i believe that there's even a scene some fan might be able to find it there's a scene in an episode of game of thrones where a character says oh uh They talk about Daenerys, the Targaryen, who's in exile in Essos. And they say, well, your subjects can secretly toast to the queen over the water, right? So so clearly, um, Martin is aware of these references, right? And he's throwing that, those associations of that Jacobite history into Game of Thrones, too, and into the idea of the Targaryens coming back. All right, so he's got some Jacobite stuff going. Mm -hmm, He's got mm -hmm. some pro-York stuff going. Right, right, right. So if you look at the Starks, where does that come from? Well, it's like York, right? But it's a combination of York and Stuart, right? They're they're Stuart slash Yorks, okay? So the Starks are sort of the, the righteous but dispossessed dynasty right that the sort of the true loyal subjects are supposed to still believe in right they're they're the romantic lost cause kind of all rolled into one in a sense right and they're northern right so they're more kind of rugged they're they have this and the name stark it's also very anglo-saxon sounding right it's not latinate it sounds it has these nice hard consonants right and they live in this in winterfell you know this this uh, this very uh, Anglo-Saxon-sounding uh, castle and town, right? They're they're the sort of good old hearty, salt of the earth English people, basically, right? And uh, and there's a whole religious dimension to it, right? So 
most people in Westeros worship um, the 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 seven faced God, right? It's, there's this whole religion of the seven, which is very reminiscent of Christianity, right? Uh, but the Starks still believe in the old gods, right? The the sort of gods of the earth and the trees, and they go out to the groves of ancient trees and. And they even have this supernatural ability to kind of talk to the trees and the animals, you know, and it's very, it's this very kind of fantasy version of, of pre-Christian Indo-European religion, right? Where uh, people worshipped at sacred wells and groves, right? And, uh, and there's a shamanic aspect to it. So I've talked about the shamanism, I think, when I talked about witchcraft, right? So there's this very common pattern all around Europe of people who believe, who are basically shamans, who believe that they have a special ability to, for their souls to go out at night in the forms of animals or riding on animals and to sort of travel with the animals to the spirit world or the world of the dead and return, right? And the Starks supposedly have this kind of preternatural ability to warg into animals or sometimes into people as well i think but generally into animals right so they have like a close relationship with their pet wolves and they can like throw their spirits and their minds into the wolves and ride with them hunt with them and i think that it's pretty obvious that an idea that's gonna come up as the story progresses is that they're going to warg into dragons as well Um, but so far we've seen them do it with wolves Right. So this is again, this is kind of like a chewed, chewed over kind of, uh, you know, processed version of of, you know, pre-Christian folk religion, which still persists in some ways in in Europe, including in Britain. Okay, in Scotland, you still have belief in fairies. Okay, in Scandinavian countries, there are sort of the troll people. Um, And of course, there are stories about werewolves. Okay. The warging, it's not that far off from werewolves, right? People who on certain special nights of the year transform into animal form and ride out at night and maybe uh, go to the world of the dead or fight spirits, right? So, yeah, you know, this is the kind of material he's using, right? And the Starks kind of take on all that freight, all those associations, right? They embody all those kind of appealing things. Right, You see, okay. um but I think that this this goes to what you were asking about before about um what like what's the whole point what what do we take from it and like what does it say about today right or how does it relate how does it relate to today and there's an obvious thing that I haven't even mentioned this whole time that people often point to is like this is how it relates to today and that's the the White Walkers right the sort of undead you know frozen arctic people who are coming down to to attack right and from my point of view i think that that's like a distraction (laughs) i think that the white walker threat is a device you know all these things are plot devices right it's a plot device that raises tension it's a plot device that gets people to you know, it throws a big problem that all these various characters all have to grapple with and respond to, right? And it can be compared to climate change, right? It's very reminiscent of the idea, you know, the seas are rising and all these disasters are happening. 
Um, but I don't think it's, I think it's beside the point. I think, you know, I see it as a device that's beside the point. And I think the point is this world is terrible. It's totally chaotic. There's no justice. How do different people, how do different characters deal with that? You know, and character is like this huge thing that we don't talk about anymore. You know, and I think that uh, in my last one about universities, I said, you know, what's really distinctive about new contemporary universities is that there's no even pretense of character education. You know, that's funny considering the recent scandal just came out. Yeah, which I like I haven't even read that much about it. Like I've barely wrapped my head around it at all. Uh, I've been distracted but my reaction my initial feeling was like well yeah i mean obviously this is a totally corrupt system (laughs) i mean universities are wonderful and please give me a nice job uh is what i actually mean to say uh but none of that was at all shocking to me i thought gee they got a pretty good deal you know those weren't even such high prices to get your kids into nice schools um i'm sure a lot of people would throw down a lot more than that uh, and I don't often do, you know, make multi-million dollar donations. Uh, but that's beside the point. But, well, I mean, it's to the point. But the bigger point is, um, I think people feel very lost. They don't know, uh, people have no guidance about how to form themselves, about how to develop their personalities, their characters. And there's a lot of fear that even trying to do such a thing is sort of naive, right? That you're just setting yourself up for disillusionment, right? And that instead you should just be kind of a pure, you know, self-serving Machiavellian, right? Uh, And if you look at Game of Thrones, I think that he sets in motion all these different characters who are all trying to survive in very different ways. And we get to see what happens to them, right? And on the one hand, you have these very idealistic, very principled people like Ned Stark and Rob Stark too, uh, you know, who have a sense of duty, who have this enormous self-confidence in themselves as kind of, uh, you know, servants of the realm or of their family. uh, And they get iced pretty quickly, right? Like it doesn't work. Okay. And then on the other end, you have people who are very scheming, very cynical okay and Littlefinger I think is the greatest example of this he says at one point chaos is a ladder right I can take advantage of the chaos I can find the opportunities I can use people I can scheme and he also has enormous self-confidence right he he thinks he's brilliant you know and that and that he's got he can see 20 steps ahead okay so I don't know, maybe I shouldn't give away where that ends up going. <laughs> if there's anyone who has only read the books and not watched all of the show, I probably shouldn't give give too much away. But you might infer from the structure <laughs> of my explanation where that's headed. And then there's all these people in between of various varieties, right? There's sort of Lord Varys, who is a lot like Littlefinger, but maybe deep down kind of really does care. And really does believe in a cause. He just keeps it very close to his chest. You have Daenerys, okay, who's like ruthless, right? Has no problem just 
offing people in brutal ways, but sees herself also as having some sort of noble cause, right? Who frees slaves, okay? She frees slaves and then crucifies their masters, right? So it's very ambiguous, right? What do we think about this? There's Jon Snow, okay? Is Jon Snow naive in the same way that maybe Ned Stark was? There's Tyrion Lannister. You know, there are these people who have different kind of strategies, right? Do they tie themselves to someone? Uh, and and uh, who do they believe in, if anybody? Do they believe in themselves? And they're all up in the air, right? Or like a lot of them are still up in the air. We don't know where any of this is going to land. And I think that to me, the the important tension isn't, are they all going to get white walkered? You know, maybe yes, maybe no. That's up to George Martin. The real tension is who do we cling on to and who do we imagine or hope will make it, right? That's really what people talk about, right, when fans talk about the show. Yeah, people want to know who's going to survive. They get really upset when certain people die. Yeah, yeah, that's the real tension. And and I think that it, a lot of it is because people see themselves, right? They see themselves and they think, God, how would I be operating? Like, would I be a good guy? Would I be a bad guy? What does that mean? What does a good guy look like? What does a bad guy look like? That's the real, that's what it's really about, I think. And even deeper than that, like, does it make sense to believe in anything? Is there something out there to believe in? Or do, do you make it up? Do you look for it? Do you invent it? And I think that, in my view, probably the most important scene, if you want to understand what is Game of Thrones about and why does it really pull people in, I think the most important scene, it's not the Red Wedding, you know, which is like this just gross smack in the face, you know, uh, although it's very good. <laughs> the most important scene, I think, is where... Okay, little spoiler for the next couple minutes if you haven't watched the whole show. Okay, spoiler warning. Is where Tyrion has reached Daenerys, okay? And she he's he's agreed to work with her as a way of surviving, right? To to help her to act as an advisor who knows about politics and knows about Westeros to help her in her plan to reinvade Westeros. And he says, I don't, I've never really believed in anything. I think that believing in things just gets you killed, right? And I've been put off from it. But almost despite myself, I believe in you. For what it's worth, I've been a cynic for as long as I can remember. Everyone's always asking me to believe in things. Family, gods, kings, myself. It was often tempting until I saw where belief got people. So I said no thank you to belief. And yet, here I am. I believe in you. It's embarrassing, really. I'd swear you're my sword, but I don't actually own a sword. It's your counsel, I need. It's yours, now and always. Good. It's the most vulnerability we ever see from 
Tyrion Lannister. And it's almost, he, I think he says, it's almost embarrassing. It's embarrassing for me to say I believe in something. And don't you think that that, I think that really resonates with people today. Oh, that's pretty real. Yeah, that hits pretty close to home, right? It's all, It's almost like you're opening yourself up to looking like a fool. Well, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I've had conversations where I will say things that I believe in and people will laugh at it, basically. Not literally, but, you know, you can tell that they think it's very naive to actually have values. Right, and I think when people laugh at that sort of thing, it, you know, on one level, they might just think, that's dumb, right? They've completely internalized the idea that it's dumb to put your your faith in anything and a principle of value, right? But also, I think in a lot of cases, it's like it creates tension. It's like, oh my God, this person's kind of being vulnerable. Do I have to be vulnerable now? And like laughing is almost a way of like avoiding the tension, don't well, you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, another like an analogous situation is when people who are religious like acknowledge that they're religious in front of people who are atheists right yeah that's a big one and and you know and and neither of us is is that religious in fact we're i don't know we're not religious we're not religious people sam but like <laughs> it is very well you know it depends on how you define it but okay it, but it is interesting it's a similar phenomenon like yeah yeah it exposes uh some people's something like that like they laugh because maybe they think the religious person the muslim or the christian or whatever is like silly for believing what they believe or maybe it's makes them feel uncomfortable about the fact that they've never grappled with their value system yeah yeah and and right and i mean in that way i think religion is like the ultimate example of what we're talking about but it it can be you know i believe in a political philosophy or a political candidate or I almost anything, you know, I, you know, and I relate this to so many things. Sure. Like, like there's the, you know, I like stayed at home because I value my family. A lot of people like in oh, our yeah. socioeconomic demographic, as opposed like, to I picked up and went to San Francisco. Yeah. Or yeah. like, really? Like you picked that over career. There's so many examples. Yeah. If you pick that yeah. over career in our social group. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. I mean, being being sort of uncommitted to anything, moving wherever you see an opportunity, you know, little finger is kind of the norm. Right. Isn't that isn't that basically where we're at? <laughs> and that not being that is like strange and a little threatening. Right. Isn't it threatening to a lot of people? Well, yeah. Oh, well, I think what's pretty interesting about little finger and. Cersei and these people it's I am it's like we mentioned it before I imagine that everyone sort of um, is rooting for the Starks right but not only have we met people that are like really into Cersei we've like met people who are really into Littlefinger yeah yeah I haven't had like an extended conversation but I know that's out there and that's really mind-boggling to it's, me. It's <laughs> not, and not as a joke, not ironically. Like, in the same way that people will sometimes go to you and say, oh, like, I know I shouldn't, but I, I really, really like Doritos. I just, like, need a bag of Doritos. Like, they say it like that. They're like, 
yeah, I like actually really like Littlefinger. And it's like, well, I yeah. actually really need to get away from you right now. Yeah, remind me not to have much interaction yeah. with you because that's just going to turn out badly. <laughs> yeah. So your take on it is that for various historical reasons, we more people are like Littlefinger. Or more people are at least aware that we're kind of living in a slightly disillusioned time and that's why the show resonates with them yeah i mean it regardless of who in particular you gravitate towards it's um i think it's speaking to the situation you know and 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 actually i think it's that it's the fact that he's showing us a whole variety of different ways that people could respond to that kind of situation right and allowing you to kind of grab on wherever wherever you do but the constant is how do you how do you function in a chaotic world and how do you function in a world where where there is no deus ex machina right where there is no hand of justice coming in and uh you know lifting up the good underdog and bringing down the villain you know what do you what do you do how do you respond to that and i think that that's what people really uh grab that's what speaks to people, I think. Yeah. So did I did I maybe make you care about Game of Thrones some? Well, I was playing hard to get in the beginning. <laughs> I, I, I think we all was, know that. Oh, so I mean, now, I like the show. okay. I, I like the show. I just haven't been watching yeah, the most recent okay. seasons. Okay. Oh, and one other thing I was I I just want to point out is that um, the next s- segment, the next season. It's not even really a season, but the next series of episodes is supposed to premiere April 14th. So I started to get suspicious of like, does that mean anything? Like, is that just an accident? And um, actually, the second really big battle of the uh, Wars of the Roses was the Battle of Barnet, where the York brothers uh, defeated Lancastrian opponents and defended their control of London and it happened April 14th, 1471. Uh, And if you look at the trajectory of what's been happening on the show, it would kind of make sense that that something based on that could be coming. (laughs) Uh, You know, just, just based on what we've seen and based on history, uh, there could be something mimicking this battle coming up soon. And I don't know, maybe it's just an accident that, uh, Maybe it'll happen on April 14th on the date of that battle. We'll just have to see. <laughs> so that, that's, that's, my, that's the sum of my prognostication. I'm not a good prognosticator, so that's it. That's all I have to offer. I think you did pretty good, Sam. Okay, okay. Well, if you, if, if you say so, we'll no, see. I, I think you're good. I think you're good. Okay. So, um, yeah, maybe we'll talk about this more later, but... Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening, and thanks, Mike. So again, please follow, rate, and review on whatever platform you use. And if you want to keep these conversations or lectures coming, and if you want to hear my patron-only material, including my last Myth of the Month, which was about political left and right, please go to the Patreon page. The link is in the description.
Yeah, I just want to be able to read notes if I want to. Oh, man. This might be, like, too much to edit. <laughs> you, you want to start the recording over? Oh, my God. How do I sit to sound less nasal? Has it um, I don't know. I think it's only been since I shoved a bunch of lima beans up my nose. <laughs> and I figured it wouldn't be an issue. But, you know, what do you, what do you know? Uh, what, the lima beans? Maybe it sprouted. Maybe I've got a lima plant growing, like, into my brain. Yeah, this is how it works. Okay, so. I got to check a text. Hold on. Let's see. <sighs> fine. All right. That's just my parents. It's fine. It's fine.